welcome. Happy Friday afternoon. Uh, today I have with me Cindy Simpson, and she is a guest that I think serves both the recovery entrepreneur audience as well as 321 No Kidding. And we're going to dive into what Cindy does and who she helps and all of her plethora of experience. So we're going to hear about it in a fun out loud context. And uh, welcome to the show, Cindy. Well, thank you, Bobby. Thanks for having me. This okay. is a uh... It's just exciting. It is exciting. Cindy, why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit about you? Okay. Well, um, we'll start kind of at the beginning, but not go through everything. I, first of all, I will be really transparent. I am in recovery myself. I came into recovery um, when I was 20 years old. Um, and I, I started working in the field when I was 24. I had no idea what I was doing. I was simply looking for a job. Um, and I was filling out unemployment forms because in that day, you actually had to look for a job in order to collect unemployment. And I wandered into a hospital called Beverly Manor at that point that had a job opening for a secretary. And I wandered in, had no idea what kind of a hospital it was. Um, got hired to be the administrative assistant to the, um, the director of the hospital and the program director, the medical director, and the clinical director. And it was only during the interview that I found out it was a drug and alcohol treatment program. And I fell in love with the field. And here I am at that point, I was four years sober. Um, so I was still really new, but I fell in love with it. And the people that I met there that I worked for saw something in me that I did not see and took me under their wing. And actually, to make it real short, um, paid for me to go get my master's in social work, uh, taught me about the field. Um, I was there for only a year um, before they said, you can do more than type. So you know, you now have your master's, we're going to kind of throw you out into the world to start doing other things. And that's kind of how I started, you know, my, um, the program director, <laughs> I love that man. Um, unfortunately, he's passed on, but I love him dearly. He said, you know, I run a, a DUI group that's for dr drinking drivers. And he said, I travel a lot, you know, I travel a lot. So I would like for you to cover that group when I am out of town. And he took me up to meet the group one night. And um, he said, so I'm going to be gone next week. And I'd like for you to cover next week. And so I went up, you know, shaking in my boots, but said, okay. And I covered for the next 52 weeks. And that was, how, <laughs> that's how I learned to, to just do it, you know? Wow. And I had a lot of opportunities like that. You know, he, the, um, he also did a lot of public speaking and I helped him put together programs. And one day he said, you know, I can't do this, Cindy. You're going to have to do it for me. And he did that a lot, you know, for the next year. And I learned how to put together programs and just speak. I mean, I had some wonderful, wonderful mentors and I fell in love, you know, and I just started doing you know, I started doing counseling. I started doing teaching. Um, I met the man who became my husband and um, 
we uh, we were instrumental in putting together with a with another group with a group of people the first counselor training program in America. Um, I mean, I've just had some really wonderful, wonderful experiences in the last 47 years that I've worked in the field. Well, congratulations on the long-term recovery and all your success. That sounds like a fun journey. It has been a very fun journey. I love that you had mentors kind of show you the way. And before we even started recording, I said to you like that business angle and then the counseling angle, you don't, you don't get that combination in everyone. So I love no. that he empowered you. You said you started the first counselor counseling agency. Can you yeah. explain that a no. little bit? No, it was a um, Saddleback College down in um, Orange County, which I say down in Orange County because I'm now in Riverside County. Um, Saddleback College was one of the first schools out in California to put together um, a, a, a counseling program for people that wanted to get into the field. Before it was like hit or miss. It was like you know, men, having mentors like like me, okay. Um, and it was you know, hit or miss. You would get a job, but there was no former formal standards for counselors. It was just people that had experience working with people that were in recovery. It was one alcoholic helping another is basically what it was. One addict helping another, which was great. But you needed more than that. You know, you needed more than that. You needed, you needed more professional training. And so Saddleback College was one of the first colleges that had a formal training program for people that wanted to work in the field. And my husband and I and, um, and, a, and a group of other people who are unfortunately no longer with us either, um, put together the first training program, the first college training program in California. Wow. That's amazing. And then, um, so we had this training program and then we were also part of the group that put together the first certifying board in California um, called CAC. (laughs) Now, now we have several certifying boards in California, but we were part of the first certifying board where you finished your schooling and then you had to take a test to become a certified counselor. Wow. Yeah. To be able to work in the field. And that was a long time ago. In your program, did you have to be in recovery to be? Okay. No, but, but most of the people were at that time because there was still the stigma attached of working with those people. Mm. We were still those people. Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. So can you share with me your thoughts on maybe how recovery in the field itself has evolved from then until now? Like, what are some of the differences? Um, Well, first of all, we're not those people anymore. Um, People have realized that addiction really is a disease. And there's, you know, I mean, we still have, there's several people out there that want nothing to do with us. Um, As, as alcoholics, um, Alcoholics are not quite as are not shunned quite as often as drug addicts are. Okay, there's still more of a of a bias against drug addicts, which I am too. Okay, I'm an alcoholic addict. Um, are shunned, the addicts are shunned more than the alcoholics are. 
but people are more and more realizing that it really is an addiction and that once once we start we are powerless to stop without help and that we don't we don't do it because we want to we do it because we have to until we get help right okay um but there was a time when there wasn't any help really for us the only help for us was alcoholics anonymous or narcotics anonymous and so you know there wasn't the conversations on the news or um in any written form that hey this really is a disease so you started 47 years ago and in the field i've been sober for 49 years wow that's fabulous yeah so aa what year was aa born Oh, now you're asking 20s, me a question. 20s, right? Was it in yeah, the 20s? It was, um, no, it was in the 30s. Okay. I, and I'm asking for a particular reason because mm-hmm. I love that you pointed out that the shunning has evolved. The education has kind of evolved. Um, and one of my pain points as a gambling addict uh-huh. is I feel like we're still 20 or 30 years behind AA yes. or awareness. Um, and, and GA was formed, I think in 55, it was in the 50s. So it's actually a true benchmark. And I, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that one of the benefits of the last two years and, and the focus on mental health and awareness and addiction and, you know, like, why do they leave the liquor stores open during a pandemic? Well, the reason they were necessary was so people didn't die from detox and, you know, things that people weren't talking about before. Right. Um, so right. In, in your experience, I, I want you to definitely dig more into like what you do. I want you to talk about, um, I don't want to mess up the slogan, but the voice of your inner child or the, right. um, so I want to hit on that, but as someone who's in the field, um, can you share with me what you're seeing as far as gambling since that's so near and dear to my heart? Do you see co-occurring disorders, which is fancy. See, I'm trying to speak like you, the fancy talk. Um, <laughs> but can you absolutely. tell me what you see? You know, absolutely. Um, you know, I see a lot of cross addiction. You know, very rarely is do you find any more a pure alcoholic, a pure drug addict, a pure gambler, a pure eater, you know, a pure anything. Okay. Those days are long gone. Okay. Um, Because I don't believe that, that most treatment programs or even most 12 step programs deal with the underlying issue. And I think the underlying issue is codependency. Oh, interesting. And there's, and there's not a lot of conversation about that. Um, codependency is the inability to maintain a functional relationship with yourselves or others. I mean, that's a, that's a real lay term for it. The if inability you, to have to a relationship. Maintain a relationship with yourself or others. Okay. And that's a real lay definition of codependency. There's a lot of patterns and characteristics. Um, 
and we can talk about more of those as we go along, but, but basically we never learned self-care. We have low self-esteem. We have a lot of, in fact, we have, okay. So we, I mean, we have lots of, lots of problems. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Those are kind of our um, patterns and characteristics of codependence. Um, that happen when we grow up in homes that are less than nurturing, less than healthy, okay? And then we learn what drug of choice works for us to deal with those homes that are less than healthy or less than nurturing. For some of us, it's alcohol. For some of us, it's drugs. For some, it's sex. For some, it's food. For some, it's gambling. For some, it's religion. If you can kind of, um, in your mind's eye, Bobby, vi- uh, picture um, an iceberg. And the part of the iceberg that you can see, the top of the iceberg that you can see has all, all the addictions, alcohol, other drugs, gambling, sex, food, uh, religion, shopping, everything that you can see. But what's holding up that iceberg is codependency. That's what most people miss is that the codependency is holding all of that up. I've never heard this formed this way. So, and and it's interesting to me. Um, So yeah, if you could go a little deeper on what codependency maybe looks like, I would love that. Okay. So let's talk about some of the patterns and characteristics. So Denial patterns are um, are one of the, you know kind of the first thing that's on the list, and denial patterns include things like I have difficulty identifying what I'm feeling. You ask me how I feel, and my my instant response would be to figure out what you're feeling first and feel the same thing, mm. or to say I don't know. Because I don't, I don't growing up, I would, I didn't have a clue what I felt. I felt what everybody else was feeling in the room, whatever that was. Um, Or I minimize or deny what I'm feeling because I was told so many times um, by my abusive, you know, alcoholic father or my, you know, not available mother, you don't feel that way. Um, or, uh, or I perceive myself as completely unselfish, unselfish and dedicated to the well-being of others. It's one of my denial patterns or one of the denial patterns, or I label others with my negative traits and not look at myself. Those are some of my denial patterns. Is that the same as mirroring? Cause that's a hot topic too, for me right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sure is. The low self-esteem patterns. I have, I have difficult, I mean, I'm just saying what the patterns are. Having difficulty making decisions on anything. Where do you want to go for lunch? Oh, God. Uh, you know, you might, might as well ask me, you know, something that's humongous. And I'm just asking you, where do you want to go for lunch? It's like, it's like a major question, you know? Because if I, if I say something that you don't want to do, you might hate me the rest of the day. 
or the rest of your life. So I might really disappoint you. I'm sorry, I interrupted you totally. It it sounds like what you're saying is people are so insecure or they don't have their own personality that they're taking on whatever's around them. Is that what I'm exactly. hearing? Exactly. And it's all based on the trauma of their childhoods. Ah, okay. Uh, so you just connected the dots because when I said I've never heard it worded as codependency, the more I learn, the more interviews that I do, the more experts, no matter what their solution is or what their background is, I'm discovering that it all goes back to that. Right. But that trauma has different faces. It could be like one of my guests talked about it being dropping an ice cream cone at three years old, you know, all the way to very extreme, terrible situations. Right. Right. Um, so I love that you brought us there. Um, and trauma doesn't have to be major. It can, like you said, it can be, it can be minor trauma, you know, it's okay. I love animals. So we can have, this is my best cat. This is my zoom kitty. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. But it can be, it can be the, the minor traumas, like you said, the dropping of the ice cream cone and the reaction that, that that brought on at home or at school. Am I also thinking correctly about this? We didn't talk about this stuff. My parents didn't talk about this stuff. I'm guessing your parents didn't talk about it. Right. So the dropping of the ice cream cone example, the parents wouldn't have had the skill set or the tools per se to teach the child about the emotion. Right. So, I mean, in that case, it could be, and I'm exaggerating, but grief or loss, or um, maybe they couldn't get a replacement. So anger, but society just didn't have those tools. Well, it's not even so much that it's, it's more of a generational, I call it a generational curse. Parents, parents teach what they learned. So if, if there was an experience in their childhood where they drop something simple where they had a simple and it was handled a certain way. They learned to handle it that way and they passed it on. And the story I like to tell, you know, I read this in Reader's Digest years ago and it's just so perfect. Two women were, um, were together at, at, at one of the women's houses, right? And they were getting ready to, to cook a ham. And the woman that owned the house cut off both ends of the ham put it in the pan, stuck it in the oven. And the other woman said, why did you cut off both ends of the ham? Well, that's the way my mom taught me. I have no idea. Right? She said, well, let's go ask your mom. Mom said, that's the way my mom taught me. So they went and asked grandma. Grandma said, well, that's the way my mom taught me. They asked great grandma. Grandma said, well, it's always been done that way. That's the way my grandma taught me. Luckily, great, great, great grandma was alive. And so they asked great grandma and great grandma said, I never had a pan big enough to cook a whole ham. Mm. And that's how it got passed down through the generations. Okay. So it's the same thing. You know, I mean, things get passed down through generations without answers. And so, you know, so do generational curses. I don't know if, if you've run into that, but that's, Things are done without without answers, including punishments. 
Yes, this is. So a friend of mine recently, and by recently, I mean, in the last two weeks, started a business where she wants to help parents with this exact thing. So it's bubbling up that parents are mindful enough to notice they don't want to discipline under the generational curse, but they might not know what they are supposed to feel or how they are supposed to discipline. And she recognizes the need for that because she struggled with it herself. She knows she doesn't want to come across angry and then, you know, perpetuate the angry. So what are your recommendations to break the curse? Well, (laughs) no pressure, no pressure. Okay. So what, what I do, um, I mean, that's part of what I do when I do my inner child work is that I take, I do it in workshop form and I do it with, um, guided imagery. I take people back um, to pick up what to pick up their kids, and in picking up their kids, they have the. I do it with um, guided imagery, as I said. They have the opportunity to see what happened at each of the age groups starting at infancy, starting the day that they were born, and so that they're able to see where the generational curses occurred, and then they know what they have to do differently. Can you explain just for those who don't know what guided imagery is? Can you okay. explain that just a little bit? Okay, so it's um, it's not hypnosis um, because they're not under. But you would have your eyes closed, and I would walk you through a scenario. For instance, uh, one of the scenarios I would walk you through if you were doing inner child work is I would have you close your eyes. And I would ask you to picture yourself going back to the delivery room where you were born and to picture um, before you were born, just being in that delivery room and look around and see who's there other than your mom, because your mom obviously is there. But who else is there? Is your dad there? Your grandparents there? Um, what, What does it feel like in that room? Look at everybody's faces. You know, what are they happy? Is everybody excited that you're coming? Just what's what's kind of the temperature in the room? Does it feel warm? Does it feel cold? Is there excitement? Who named you? You know, I'd go through a series of questions like that so that you can get a sense of kind of the overall temperature in the room. And people can go back to birth? Yeah. Wow. And then I... um, once you kind of get that sense, and then I then I'll say, okay, I want you to. Um, it's time for you to be born now. I want you to watch your birth, and I want you to watch the people around you, um, around as you as you're being born. I want you to watch that. You know, who are you put on your mama's chest? You know, and and what's the look on her face? And if your dad's there, what's his look? And everybody else is in the room. Mm. Yeah. And and I just walk you through all of that, you know, and that's a technique to help people get kind of reprogrammed, right. And to change their patterns. Right. And changing the patterns is a different way to cope versus like uh, to tie in the addiction, right? Like, so if we're changing the patterns, um, we're looking at things different, different solutions so that the drugs, the drinking, the gambling, the sex, all those things are not the solutions anymore. Right. And they also see, um, 
and their higher power is there, whatever their higher power is. Okay. So that they, they feel, I mean, they know that they're not alone in that room, that they have support. And then I have the higher power pick that baby up when, when we're ready to close out that segment, pick up the baby and take that baby back to that person. It would be you, for instance, pick up your baby, pick up you, your baby, and take it back to your safe space, which we've already established where your safe space is. And the, and the three of you then go back to your safe space. Hmm. And then you come out of it and we process what happened for you. And we do this in a group. It's not, um, it's not one-on-one, it's a group. Wow, that's interesting. Each person goes to, and I, I, when I do it, we pick up five kids. We pick up the, the infant, the toddler, um, the, the school-aged child, the middle school child, and the adolescent. So what are the results? Can you share some? some yeah, it's, um, it's really pretty amazing because the, the person is able to connect with, well, at the end of it, we meld all the kids into one and then meld that, that child into you, okay? They're able to see at the different points what child it is that, first of all, they're able to see where the damage was done and it may be on different levels at different ages. Okay. So they're able to see that and they'll, they're, they're able to see what kind of damage was done and recognize that it wasn't their fault. They didn't do anything. Okay. They didn't, they're not responsible for anything that happened. They're kids. They're not responsible. And they also understand that they don't have to, that they can break that curse because it's not theirs. So they don't have to continue to do it. They can leave it where it is. It belongs to the parents. It doesn't belong to them. And does that healing help them on their journey away from drugs and alcohol? Is that kind of. Yeah. And they don't have to keep doing the same thing over again because it doesn't belong to them. They can leave it where it is. Wow. Yeah. It's been really powerful. Really powerful. Do you have to be a drug and alcohol counselor to know how to do guided imagery or that's a little bit different arena altogether. No, you don't, but you have to, you know, you have to, you have to know how to do it. I know of, I only have heard of it once from a person that went through it and I don't, you know, I don't know the details of what happened. So I appreciate you sharing that with me. You know, a lot of times it's used in just in meditation also. It's always supervised though. Yes. Yeah. And you can do it on zoom. It sounds like. Yes. And, you know, the pandemic, when the, I had no idea I could do it on Zoom, to be honest with you. I had always done it live. And then the pandemic hit, but I had a call for it. Um, and I thought, well, I don't know, but I thought I'll try it. And it was so powerful. And I was able to connect just like I could in Zoom. And they were able to connect. And the thing that was so amazing is that when they were doing the guided imagery, they felt really safe because they were in their own homes. And when it was time to process, they felt like they were in a group because they were. And I mean, I was dumbfounded, but they have stayed, each group has stayed together as a group ever since. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Okay. So I kind of hijacked and went all different directions. So. Is there anything that you want to share specifically with our audience? Nowadays, this is what you do. You teach guided imagery. 
right? Yeah, I do inner child work. Yeah, I do do inner child work. I, you know, and I do, it's interesting. I, I do several things. I do the inner child work. And then the other part of my job is I, um, I, have, an, I have another business partner and I help drug and alcohol programs, new drug and alcohol programs get licensed and certified. So I do this business part of it, and then I do this therapeutic stuff with the inner child work, which is kind of interesting. That that is. I see, and then I and then I see people privately too. So I'm gonna be selfish with this question and see okay. if you can answer it from the drug and alcohol perspective. And is there synergy between the different stages of recovery within the alcohol and drug world? And this is what I mean. Anywhere from inpatient treatment to then the next step, which might be outpatient to maybe the next step, 12 step or, or whatever that looks like. Is there a lot of dialogue? I'm not experienced with that. Like I went into gambling rehab and then there was an aftercare plan. And I happened to live somewhere where there was a robust aftercare plan but I'm feeling like there's gaps in recovery and we almost cut people loose too soon and don't give them a fighting chance. Cause they go back to all the triggers, right. That the ones that are at least out of their control and maybe the rehab has things like guided meditation or guided imagery. Maybe they don't right? And different things work for different people. So do you see a lot of synergy in that since you get to work in the the institutional part of that, I guess I'm not exactly sure the word I'm looking for. You know, I agree with you. There are a lot of gaps in treatment across the board. And unfortunately, I think the gaps are a result of um, the insurance companies and the payers. Okay. Um, In a perfect world, somebody would do detox, inpatient or residential, um, outpatient and sober living. I mean, there would be a step down all the way through. And in a perfect world, somebody could stay in treatment for six to 12 months at some level. Okay. Um, But unfortunately, insurance and or the other payers won't pay for that. Do you think Um, it'll catch up now that these kinds of things are in the what is it? The DD five, DDT, that book. DSM five. Yes, that. No, no, nope. because it's been in the DSM five for quite a while now. And if anything, they're getting tighter on it, uh, and they're they're approving less number of days, not more number of days. Gotcha. Yeah, which is really crazy. I mean, and and the hoops that we have to jump through um, are insane. And they're still saying no. I mean, I, I write utilization reviews for insurance companies and I know how to write them. And they're still saying, oh, well, we'll give you three days. Wow. Or, or, four, or four days or five days. And we have to do it like every, every three or four or five days, we have to write a utilization review. That's nuts. Sounds it. This is a life-threatening disease you know, and they're going to die. This is, you know, this is the third time they've been in treatment and you piece it out every single time. They're going to die. Does the frequency have something to do with their payment? Like 
more days on the first try? No. Okay. No, that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. See, one of my bigger missions, and so I'm going to be a billionaire someday. I've decided, and I'm, I'm learning and have my dreams. Um, but part of it is you need money and influence to change anything in this country, at least as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. And with the gambling treatment, um, and this really stuck out for me, my friend lived in one state and he had to pay out of pocket. I lived in a different, I went to a counseling and the state paid for it. It all depend on, and the, the revenue generated was from the casinos or the betting establishments. Well, they look different in the different states. So I want it mandatory across all the states that whatever that percentage is or whatever, there's money for treatment in every single state, because one of the biggest hurdles for a gambler, and I'm guessing most alcoholics and um, drug addicts is money. And by the time you're looking for Mm -hmm. help as a gambler, you're out of money. I mean, nobody that's doing well generally goes into treatment. Um, It's just not what you see. So that's why I was really curious because anything that we can model in the gambling or I believe sugar addiction is going to bubble up and there's going to be some more awareness or formal stuff around that same thing, shopping, thinking, all those, all those things are becoming more common, especially now. Um, Mm -hmm. It's almost like alcoholism has paved the way on some level. (laughs) So anything that we can take Mm -hmm. from treatment in that arena is going to be helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It is. Cindy, what else am I missing? What else would you like to share? You're not a big marketer. It doesn't look like, like you're not all over social media and all the things, right? So a lot of people come on podcasts to promote themselves. So I'm happy to let you share a little about your services now that we know you're on Zoom. Um, anybody that wants to get to know you a little better, maybe tell them where you, where, how they can find you. Okay, so I have a website. It's called, um, it's www.givemychildavoice.com. Or you can email me at givemychildavoice at gmail.com. And I will be more than happy to respond to anything. Um, My website talks all about my inner child workshops. Um, That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. And, you know, I'm not (laughs) not a marker. Everything has come to me um, by word of mouth. And this is, as I mentioned to you earlier, this is the first podcast I've done. So I just. You did wonderfully, by the way. Brilliant. You did a great job. Um, It could be a little intimidating, especially with the video. And you were a really good sport. And um, you're helping me get over my, you know, maybe ego, maybe fear, right? Well, what if 800 people aren't watching, right? You know, like get me out of my comfort zone. The podcast, they can't tell. So um, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom today. And, um, giving this is this is where i've i've come to believe especially the last few months i believe that recovery is possible for everybody i agree but i believe it's different for everybody i so, agree so 
that's part of what I want to exploit as much as possible on the show. Maybe something sounds really woo-woo to one person, but maybe it connects to another. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe 12 step is right for some. Cause, cause I used to be, you know, well, I hated it as a kid. Cause I felt like, well, why should I have to go as a kid? So I resented 12 step. And then when I quit gambling the first time, that's when I finally started to embrace it. Um, and then I almost probably shouldn't say this on ear, outgrew it because of the other education that I was getting in the background, that it wasn't as simple and black and white as these maybe slogans or universal concepts in the rooms. I mean, there's still great value. Like I said, I feel guilty kind of saying that. So as I, I needed more to stimulate me and educate me, I mean, it's a group of pairs, right? There, It's a crapshoot <laughs> gambling reference there. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> You really don't know who you're going to meet or what the crowd's going to be like. And, and it's not only is it not professionals, it's, it's addicts. You're in a room full of addicts. So, um, so that's what led me to this, to, you know, the books I read, the different kinds of therapy. So I love that you were on here and, and bring another solution to the table or another alternative for people to explore. So that's a huge, huge thank you for that. So I really appreciate that, Cindy. That was a long way of telling you thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, you know, I do both. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It saved my life. It really did. Um, and I didn't go into it gracefully at 20. You know, I had spent um, nine months at Camarillo State Hospital for the criminally insane. <laughs> because in my... Um, in my youth, I was a wild child and uh, threw a cop over his car and broke his back. And they decided I was a danger to myself and others. Um, but, you know, it was really when I got there, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, it was the family I always wanted, you know, and so I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was 16 and a half years sober when I uh, came into CODA. Again, I did not go into it gracefully. An intervention was done on me because I had picked up most of these characteristics. Even though I was in the field, I was working in the field and I was teaching codependency. Um, it was so new. It was so new. Um, I was teaching it. I was also living it and didn't realize it. Uh, and it saved my life for the second time, you know, so I am a big proponent of, um, of doing CODA work. Um, and so I do them both, but I, um, and with everybody that I work with, yes, I I address their primary issue, whatever it is be it alcohol, be it other drugs, be it gambling, be it food, be it whatever it is. I address that, but I address codependency at the same time, because I know that that's, what's going to take them back out. I know that untreated codependency will take an addict back out 100% of the time, 100% of the time in some form, it's going to take them back out. And so I'm, I'm a real code of warrior when it comes to that, because I've seen it happen way too many times. So when you say CODA, that's short for codependency. Yeah. Codependence anonymous or codependency. Yeah. Ah, okay. 
Thank yeah. you. There is a there is a twelve step program for codependency, um, which is Codependence Anonymous. We even huh. we even have our own book. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I'm glad I asked for clarification on that because I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there are meetings um, all over the world. You know, I've met some uh, amazing people all over the world. Um, in fact, the inner child work that I do, um, and it's all, only because of the, of the pandemic, actually, that I have had the opportunity to do inner child work with people all over the world. Um, because I've uh, spoken at some code of functions on Zoom that have been broadcast all over the world, which has been very exciting. Um, and so I've met people all over. In fact, my last um, inner child workshop, I had two people from Ontario or from Canada, two from Ireland, one from Australia, and two from the States. Wow. You are right. very international. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. You know, and that's yeah. that's another valid point, right? It doesn't matter where you are in the world. The problems are the same. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>